If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we'll be delving into the murky history of murder with the lawyer and writer Kate Morgan. Kate is the author of a new book, Murder, the Biography which explores the legal history of homicide and some of the cases that have contributed to UK murder law as we know it today. From Richard Parker, the cannibalised cabin boy who was eaten by his hungry crewmates, to Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hanged in the United Kingdom. Kate spoke to BBC History Revealed editor Charlotte Hodgman. Kate, thanks so much for for joining us today. Um, Perhaps you could just start off by telling us a little bit about the book, you know, your, why you wanted to write it and, you know, how you went about it. Yeah, of course. Um, well, uh, the inspiration for the book really, uh, from my point of view, came from from being a lawyer by by background and as well as that being a bit of a true crime fan as well. And, and I think when you watch all these documentaries and dramas, you know, we get very taken in with with the crime and what happens but it just got me thinking about actually how much do do I know about the law that that sits behind all of this the the law of murder um I could recall bits and bobs from when I studied the subject at university but but really not an awful lot so I started to to look into that um and as I sort of dug out the textbooks and started to read up on on some of the cases I realized that there was um there was this really sort of compelling mishmash of these, you know, very, very tragic, but also very interesting and fascinating stories that that were really as exciting and and as uh, dramatic as anything that you see in television or film. Uh, and I just started to think, I think there's there's possibly a book in there. Um, I'm a, I'm a big nonfiction reader, so I always thought that if I did have a book in me, it was probably going to be nonfiction. Uh, and being a lawyer. Um, writing what you know the law seemed the obvious place to start um and and that's that's really it went from there basically okay i mean it's interesting that you say that you're a true crime fan i think that's something that um kind of has struck me is that you know we seem to have 
you know, um, a big fascination with with murder and and crimes and this sort of this sort of um, uh, this topic. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we're so obsessed with that type of thing? It, it's it's such a such a good question, and I still don't know. Having written a book <laughs> about it, um, I, I think it's very true. You know, we we talk about true crime, but what we really mean is murder when we mm. talk about that. <laughs> That's what we're we're ultimately really fascinated with. Um, and what struck me as I was researching and and looking at some of the cases that make up, up the book is actually our current obsession with you know Netflix and docudramas all that kind of thing uh, podcasts as well obviously it, it's nothing new when I was going back through some of the uh, the older cases particularly from the the Victorian era where you've got essentially the the growth of the the popular press then um everybody's been always been fascinated with with these kinds of stories so i don't think at the moment it's it's anything new i think it's some really intrinsic dark part of part of human nature and i think that there's something there uh, you know going back to the days of of public executions a couple of hundred years ago we used to crowd the streets and watch people be executed which you wouldn't dream of doing that now but I, I think it just shows that there's this really dark element and and sort of fascination with these grisly things that's that's just an intrinsic part of human nature yeah I mean would you say that the um Victorian era was sort of the, the golden age of kind of our fascination with with murder was this kind of when we can see that it kind of peaked I, I don't think it it peaked then, but I, I think it um, it sort of hit a high point then that it's not really come down from. Um, there's a, a really interesting short essay by George Orwell called "The Decline of the English Murder," and he dates the decline of, of classical murder to to around the turn of the century. But I don't think that's that's true at all. I think it was really just getting into its stride then. Um, and um, I think what happened in the Victorian era is there's this birth of the, the tabloid press. There are things like the penny dreadfuls and the broadsides. So suddenly crime and murder and horrible things happening to other people becomes very accessible and people do want to read about it and then they can. So suddenly then there's a there's an almost an industry there from the newspapers um, and then dramatists as well. What I found really interesting when I was looking at a lot of cases from the 19th century is, um, you know, things like the television adaptations and the dramas that we have have nowadays i mean there's been recently the um the program about dennis nielsen starring david tennant there was white house farm on the television um i think that was last year that's actually nothing new this making drama out of out of murder you know there were there were some 19th century cases in in the book that i um as i was researching found they've been turned into plays they've been turned into sort of ballads and broadsheets and all that kind of thing so i think there's a almost a perfect storm in the 19th century of it becomes immediately accessible to to people uh, and that coincides with everybody discovering this this grisly appetite for entertainment based on these horrible stories yeah yeah <clears throat> I mean your book looks at kind of the murder as a kind of a as a, a as a crime doesn't it in general and the sort of different types of murder I mean when when I mean just sort of going back to the very beginning when do we first start using the word murder you know what does it mean and where does that word actually come from it goes back a, a lot further than I, I thought but perhaps um not as far as as other people think because um we, we get a bit obsessed I think with thou shalt not kill and we think it's a it's a biblical invention essentially which to some extent it is but what we actually call the crime of 
of murder in this country is is a bit more recent than that. Um, really, that that comes into play in the sort of Anglo-Saxon era, um, where it first becomes something that is uh, punishable by the state and punishable by by death. So, in around the tenth and eleventh centuries, there's this concept of Mordor that emerges into into the um, the legal system. It comes across from from France and also from Germany, um, and what that denotes is a is a secret killing. So it, it's not just the fact that you've killed somebody that makes it a crime; it's the fact that you've done it in secret is what makes the law take an interest in it in effectively. And then over the next couple of hundred years, that got finessed a little bit; it got anglicised, and and that then led into the crime of of murder that has been part of the law um since since those times really but it's it what what has changed over the centuries and, and continues to change is is the types of killing and the circumstances of killing that falls within that that definition of murder um so i talk in the book that you know all murders are homicides but not all homicides are are murders and there's been a, an ongoing challenge for the law really to to draw those demarcation lines between the kinds of killings that it that it deems to be murder and that's shifted almost continuously since since back in those anglo-saxon days really so in the anglo-saxon period was <clears throat> was it a lot more sim- was it simpler than it is today so you took somebody's life that's that's murder you know that's that's whereas today the perhaps the definitions are slightly more blurred yeah. aren't they so so t- to begin with essentially i mean there were there was a lot of circumstances that it wasn't a killing wasn't even treated as being unlawful i mean it was i i think we you know in the modern era we kind of forget how dangerous daily life was back in those days and and actually violent death at somebody else's hands wasn't necessarily the the shocking um, thing that we see as today, because life expectancy was was so much lower. There were so many other threats to to people's safety that actually the the act of of murder wasn't um, really given the prominence that it is in our culture today. So um, at that point, uh, it would only be those secret killings that were effectively treated as as murder um, back in those days. And then it's it's as the um, the law progresses, probably over the next few hundred years. So by the sort of fifteenth and sixteenth century. Um, it, it's uh, come to be attached with this concept of um, sort of premeditation and malice aforethought that really defines murder from from other lesser homicides like like manslaughter. Mm. And what what sentence would um, would a, a murder carry um, in the in that Anglo-Saxon period? Yep. So in certainly from like the Middle Ages onwards, it, it would be death for those killings that were found to be deliberate. Um, originally, before the before the concept of Mordor entered the law, um, very often the killing was atoned for by by paying um, something known as as bot, which was effectively financial compensation to the to the victim of the person that had been killed, and that then was was the end of the matter really, as far as the law was concerned. So it didn't become a, a crime that was punishable by the state uh, until this concept concept of Mordor and, and then murder emerged a couple of centuries later. Um, and really ever since then, um, mur- murder has been uh, punishable by death in, in almost all circumstances. Uh, what did change over the course of sort of more recent history is the fact that 
there were so many other crimes that were punishable by death as well. When you get into the, so in the 17th and particularly the 18th centuries, there were almost 200 criminal offences that were punishable by death. So murder really wasn't anything special. You know, you could be hung for stealing a loaf of bread uh, just in the same way that you could be hung for murdering someone. It's only in the middle of the Victorian era where the death penalty for crimes other than murder and treason is abolished that murder sort of assumes this this prominence within the criminal law based largely on the fact that it is the only crime in effect punishable by death and I think that gives it an extra layer of of notoriety from that point onwards. So what what changed what made um, you know you you just said that you know that there were many crimes that kind of had the the death penalty was there a particular case or was there anything that you can sort of we can pinpoint and say this is when and this is why murder began to be taken very seriously? I didn't find anything specific, but I think what happened was in the Georgian era, there's a lot of focus on the law as being a means of protecting property and money and finance and somebody interfering with those those rights was, was seen you know, as no better than a murderer and, and that was reflected in the punishment of the, of the law. And I think as... Um, society progresses and and the law gets a little bit more enlightened that seems to seems to drop away really so that by and certainly by the 1820s 30s uh that there's beginning to be the stirrings of a of an abolition movement for the death penalty in general anyway so that sort of adds on the pressure for for the law to slim it down and really focus on which crimes should should be punishable by death and that that progresses throughout the victorian era so it's very difficult to point to a sort of big bang theory i think there's a there's just a gradual realization that this is not a civilized way to for a legal system to conduct itself uh, and I, I certainly found um notes in reports of cases from that era that were were very critical of that 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 said you know that the um that the death sentences handed out by British courts were were, were not acceptable and and it was um, something that the country should be ashamed of. So I think the um, the reaction and the opposition to the death penalty, which which you know went on for for several hundred years in effect till it was got rid of it only in the middle of the twentieth century, that's had a, a very long history to it as well. Okay, um, what about manslaughter? Is that does that have as long a history um, in legal terms as as murder? It, it does. I mean, they they sort of um, they grow up alongside each other, really, because as murder becomes defined, then there's a question of of then setting the boundaries of crimes that fall short of that, and to what extent should the law punish those? So, uh, manslaughter as a term enters the lexicon in about the 1500s. I think that's the first first recorded instance of it. Um, it, it really hits its stride in the in the Georgian era with the the habit of the aristocracy of of settling their arguments with jewels and the the reluctance of the courts to criminalize um gentlemen and and people of the higher social uh, standing uh, to criminalise them for murder. So the courts then began to take a more expansive approach and try and find reasons to be able to reduce that charge to, to manslaughter. And that's where a lot of the, the defences that we still uh, use in courts today uh, come from. So, for instance, provocation, um, the idea that somebody can provoke you into killing them and that will reduce the the crime from murder to manslaughter. That dates from this, this um, sort of 16th and 17th century era of the duel and that was the the reason that was given 
um, to be able to reduce that crime to manslaughter. Um, but I think um, that there's a, a lot of commentary even in 20th century manslaughter trials about how, how difficult manslaughter can be as a concept. In some ways, it's a lot more difficult to categorise than murder because it covers so many different circumstances and so many different types of, of killers. Um, it ranges from something that is, is in effect, all, all but um, murderous to something that's that's practically accidental. So there's a very rich history, and and in some ways the the law and the stories connected with manslaughter is, are equally as fascinating as as the murder trials as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as well as the crimes they commit, people are also kind of fascinated with the people who are doing the killing. Um, I mean, you know, what make if from your research, what what make what makes a killer? I mean, what is there anything that links the, these kind mm. of the, the perpetrators of these crimes that that you can that you can sort of see? Yeah, um, I, I think the, the the common factor is there is no common factor. Basically, is is what um, what I found as I was looking at the book, and that that's part of the um, the the process I went through in researching the book that I found really interesting because I, I'd studied some of these cases and stories when I, I'd done my law degree some years ago but you don't at that at that stage you don't go into the human stories you just look at the case on a very surface level to look at the point of law that comes out of it so what I was really interested in with the book is is getting into the detail of of not just the the deaths of these people but also their lives and the the circumstances that surrounded them um I, I think the the, the fact is we have a very um very black and white concept of what a murderer is it, it's um it's very bound up with what we see on the television and and in film it, it's um you know a, a shadowy stranger it's jack the ripper it's it's that kind of thing but actually when you look at the law and the stories th- that is very much not the case uh, you know most of them uh, a lot of the cases that i cover in the book they they come from uh desperate circumstances and and something that goes horribly awry um and what i what i found is that the people that the law classes as a murderer are actually in a lot of cases very far removed from that image and it, it's um it's not uh, anywhere near as black and white as we would imagine still to come on the history extra podcast i remember reading a you know a really powerful account of the the days before Ruth Ellis's execution people were gathered outside the prison where she was being held and they were they were chanting Evans and Bentley Ellis um so these cases I think had got tied together in in the public's imagination so I think the concern from the government at that point was if they didn't go ahead with executing Ruth Ellis they might as well abolish the death penalty there and then really We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that struck me when I was looking at some of the cases that you look at. Mm. Um, on the one hand, you've got, you know, you've got serial killers. And then you've got, there's a case that you mentioned um, in 1884 about the three sailors who, who <laughs> ate the, yep. the ship's boy. Um, I don't know whether you can tell us a little bit more about that case as well. It's quite an interesting story. But, I mean, but they're both, in theory, they're, they're both termed as, they're all termed as murderers, aren't they? They're, they're all labelled with the same... Term. Exactly. I think that's part of the problem for the law is it, it's almost too too blunt an instrument now because, you you know, you've got at the one hand somebody who's very deliberately and very cold-bloodedly killed somebody uh, within the parameters of the law as it stands today, somebody who um, who has not planned a killing in advance but does um, kill somebody either intentionally or with the intent to cause them serious harm, they are guilty of murder. That's that's the, um, the composition of the criminal offence. So there's a lot of our Argument around whether that's actually the, the correct approach because it, it doesn't differentiate between the circumstances that, that somebody can end up taking a life in. And the case you mentioned there is, is, a, is a great story and it's, it's one that when I've been talking about the book, people seem to really pick up on actually. Um, it's the story of um, Thomas Dudley and Edward Stevens who were the um, captain and mate of a uh, small sailing yacht uh, called the Mignonette. And in 1884, they, uh, along with another crew member and a, a cabin boy, a young lad named Richard Parker, they were hired to sail the yacht from um, Southampton down to Australia. They uh, hit a storm in the middle of the Atlantic and were, were shipwrecked. They just about managed to get into a lifeboat uh, before the yacht sank. So you're, you're left with the four of them about 600 miles or so from the nearest land in, in an open boat in the middle of the Atlantic, surrounded by sharks and, and rain and uh, burning sun and everything. It, it was really a, a horrendous uh, set of circumstances for them. After about a month, they have managed to survive on a few tins of turnips and, and drinking rainwater and eating a turtle at one point, I think, but they decide that's no longer enough. Uh, so poor Richard Parker, the cabin boy, is um, obviously the youngest and he's also the weakest of them. He's been drinking seawater and he's not very well at all. So there comes a point when Dudley and Stevens decide to uh, slit Parker's throat and they uh, eat his flesh uh, in the in the lifeboat and um, thinking it will probably prolong but not necessarily save their lives but just a couple of days later by by really fortunate circumstances they're picked up by a passing ship who uh, rescues them from the lifeboats 
noting the presence of some some bones and bits of uh, meaty looking stuff in the bottom of the keel uh, and the ship takes them to Falmouth where they're, they're brought back ashore and um, when they go into the customs office to tell the customs officer about what happened uh, they're they're quite upfront about what they've what they've done because from their point of view as sailors they don't think there's anything wrong with it at that point in history people thought that cannibalism at sea was acceptable in in circumstances that it it, it um, could help somebody's survival so they thought they'd just simply done what any other sailor would have done in in those circumstances um the authorities uh, obviously didn't agree um and they decided to arrest them and put them on trial for murder um what i found fascinating when i was reading about the story is that there was a, a huge amount of public sympathy for them uh, even richard parker's family were were quite happy to shake their hands in court when they saw them uh, because they generally felt that they they'd done what anybody else would in those circumstances but as far as the courts were concerned um they couldn't rely on an argument that, that killing somebody to survive uh, was a defence to murder. The court said that was not the case. Um, what they'd done was murder and, and they were, were convicted. Uh, fortunately for them, they weren't executed. They, they were reprieved by, by the Home Secretary in Queen Victoria. Uh, so they just served six months in prison rather than the death penalty. Um, but it, it's a case that still crops up occasionally today when people talk about whether there's any such thing as a, a defence of necessity to murder. It, it all dates back to Dudley and Stevens, which said absolutely no, there, there is not. Um, and I, I just found it fascinating with that case because I don't I don't think that's very well known now. And I just think it's it's such a great story. And it was a it was a huge splash at the time, but we seem to have have forgotten about it because I, I think they're not um you know, they're not a Jack the Ripper or or something like that. Uh, they're they're very uh, human individuals in a in a very dreadful uh, situation. And I think with that one, it it sort of begs the question: Well, would you have done the same thing if you were if you were in that boat as well? And I think that goes to the heart of this this idea of whether our perception of what a murderer is is actually borne out by the reality of it. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, I mean, it is a great story, um, definitely. I mean, uh, are there any sort of other kind of key cases that you came across that you think have been perhaps in- instrumental in, in perhaps shaping, um, you know, our understanding of murder in, in, in the law? Uh, what, one of the ones that I was really interested to to read about was was the story of Ruth Ellis who's obviously very very well known you know a lot of people will know her story she was the the last woman to be executed in in Britain um she was executed for the murder of her boyfriend David Blakely in uh, 1955 um and she's gone down in history really because she was was the last woman to be to be executed uh in this country and that was a, about the sum total of what I knew about about Ruth Ellis I, I didn't really know the ins and outs of her story and her and her trial uh, other than it's always presented very much as a crime of passion uh, she you know had, had fallen out with with David um, had then tracked him down after a tiff and had shot him outside a pub in Hampstead uh, and it's always presented as this quite sort of film noirish femme fatale um, story really like something out of crime fiction but what I, I was really interested when I was researching that one uh, was to see that about five about five or six years before Ruth Ellis's case, there'd been a, another murder trial involving a, a young lady called Renee Duffy, who was from Manchester, and she she'd killed her husband uh, with with, a, with an axe, 
um, after an argument uh, and had also, uh, as Ruth Ellis would, would go on to do, had tried to argue that she'd been provoked into murdering him because of his his ill-treatment of her. Um, and uh, she um, was unsuccessful. She was convicted of murder. Uh, and at her trial, the the, the judge um, set out the test of, of provocation, the legal test of provocation um, around um, being around um, words and deeds by the um, deceased person to the accused that has caused them to, to lose their self-control. So that became the test that Ruth Ellis then had to satisfy when, when she argued for provocation um, just a few years years later um but what i what really astonished me with that story was the the discrepancy in in the public treatment and the authorities treatment of the two women um renee duffy was was convicted of murder but she she attracted an enormous amount of public sympathy and she was actually reprieved so she was not executed um for for whatever reason ruth ellis didn't seem to attract that same um sort of warm feeling and sympathy from from the courts and and also the government then when the question of of a reprieve came up and and she then obviously was was to go down in history because she was she was executed so i just found it uh really extraordinary to read about the the difference in approaches and the and the difference in reactions for what were really quite two quite similar cases you know both both involving women who who'd killed their partners in in quite trying circumstances but you know, one um, one is reprieved, and we don't really know that much about her, unless you're a, a criminal lawyer who happens to look up the history of the provocation defence. Uh, the other isn't reprieved, and and she goes down in history, and we still talk about her today. So I just found that that was a that was a, a surprising bit of the, the 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 Ruth Ellis story that I didn't really know that much about. No, I mean, do you, do you have any theories as to why why that might have been? I, I, the best I, I could find when I was looking at the case was I think by the time that Ruth Ellis comes to trial in the mid fifties, there's a bit of a maelstrom going on around the death penalty. There's there's been um, the case of Derek Bentley a couple of years before, which I also talk about in the book. Um, Bentley was a was a young lad who, um, with one of his friends, went out to to rob a warehouse in London. Uh, his friend, a lad named Christopher Craig, shot and killed a policeman during the course of the robbery. They were both prosecuted for for murder and Bentley was was they were both convicted but Bentley was old enough to face the death penalty he was 18 so he was executed whereas whereas Craig was under 18 and wasn't executed uh so there'd been a lot of controversy around that there'd also been the execution of Timothy Evans um, for for a murder at Rillington Place uh, in 1950, which actually turned out to be um, the responsibility of John Christie, who who was then found a couple of years later to be a, a serial killer in effect. So there was a, a quite a um, lot of public controversy about those executions, and um, people were questioning whether the death penalty itself should should be um, brought to an end, um, and um, I remember reading a you know a really powerful account of the the days before Ruth Ellis's execution. People were gathered outside the prison where she was being in, held, and they were they were chanting Evans and Bentley Ellis. Um, so these cases, I think, had got tied together in in the public's imagination. So I think the concern from the government at that point was if they didn't go ahead with executing Ruth Ellis, they might as well abolish the death penalty there and then really because I, they, I think they thought that would be uh, opening the floodgates to, to mm. full-blown abolition at that stage and they, di- they didn't want to do that right yeah that's that is a that's an interesting interesting point 
Um, another another um, another thing that kind of interests me is the, the whole concept of diminished responsibility, particularly kind of mental health and kind of and and when do we first sort of see people um, perhaps their their sense you know their their crime is being classed as manslaughter, perhaps more than, uh, over murder on the grounds that they were kind of not, mm. not in, of sound mind. Uh, when do you sort of first see that, that sort of coming about? Um, it, it's quite a um, drawn-out history to, to that kind of uh, element of um, homicide, actually, because you, you've generally, as, as far back as, as it's possible to go, if somebody is considered to be insane, it, it's generally very difficult to convict them of a crime because um, to be guilty of the crime, they they have to have a, a, a guilty mind. They have to have the mental intention to, to commit the crime. And if if you are um, not of sound mind, you, you cannot have formed that intention. So uh, insanity as a defence goes back a, a, a very long, long way. Um, it didn't... Um, really crop up in in many well-documented cases until the sort of late 18th, early 19th century when we get really good records of um, of, of trials and, and transcripts and, and obviously um, medical evidence begins to become more sophisticated at that point. So you, you start to see it um, really set out more, more thoroughly. So there, there's a case in the book from um, the late 1700s, a, a Scottish case involving a, a, an aristocrat who shot and killed his brother, uh, a chap called Archibald Kinlock, who was uh, put on trial for murder in, in Edinburgh in, in the late 1700s. And he was found to be uh, guilty but insane, and the courts were then prepared to, to have him discharged to medical care rather than executed. Um, and that case is, is is an interesting one because there's there's quite a lot of first-hand testimony about the um, the impact of his mental illness and, and the suffering that he went through and, and how that culminated in, in what he did. So, so that's a, a sort of early bellwether for, for things beginning to change. Then through the, the 19th century, medicine and particularly um, psychiatric medicine begins to become more... Um, more sophisticated um and uh in the mid 19th century there's a there's a famous case of daniel mcnaughton who is a um a disgruntled carpenter from scotland who who believes the tories have got a a grudge against him um which culminates in him coming down to london and um shooting who he thinks is robert peel the prime minister but who actually turns out to be peel's secretary a, a man called edward drummond um so mcnaughton was tried for for drummond's murder and was was found to be insane and as part of the um sort of fallout from that case um the House of Lords looked at the the circumstances of McNaughton's insanity and set out what's now known as the McNaughton rules, which is the test that the courts apply to determine whether whether someone is is insane and therefore um, should be acquitted on that basis. So there, there's there's a few um, few other cases around the same time involving assassinations. There's a couple of attempts on on George III's life and also Queen Victoria. Um, and a lot of these cases involve insanity defences. Um, but it, it, it's a very binary concept in the law at that time. And it, it, it's, you know, in essence, if somebody understands what they've done and they understand that it is wrong, then to all intents and purposes, they are they are sane as far as the law is concerned. And there's, there's no recognition of sort of other stresses or um, mental disturbances that, that might 
stop short of meeting that test but could still drive somebody's behaviour and and suggest that they shouldn't be responsible for their actions. So it's actually not until the 1950s that the concept of diminished responsibility comes into into English law, um, which is a, um, a, a more subjective assessment of of mental illness um, and the extent to which that should be taken into account to reduce something to manslaughter. So that only comes about in the in the 1950s, really, um, and and it's quite controversial at the time. I, th- I think um, I think these kind of cases always are actually because I think um, particularly if there's been a very brutal or um, you know w- w- apparently wicked crime, I think people get very hung up on on somebody trying to almost take an easy way out with an insanity plea. Um, and actually, there's there's some quite poignant um, testimony, certainly in some of the Victorian cases where people are pleading insanity. Where their lawyers are saying, "Look, you know, this is this is not an easy way out. You, you, you um, mental mental health care at the time was such that actually being found to be insane and confined to an asylum to for a lot of people would be a, a fate worse than death." Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> another one, another thing that I found really interesting was the the idea of corporate manslaughter, which is quite a, obviously a fairly it's quite a modern uh, sort of concept, and it kind of may be think that obviously the law is it's, it's sort of constant it's going to have to constantly change because this is a this is a brand new you know when did we when did we first sort of see um a company being being kind of convicted of of manslaughter um uh, clearly that would have been quite a landmark moment um sort of legally oh it, it's a it's a great great question actually it was a bit i was uh really interested to to weave into the book because when I, I was a lawyer I worked as an in-house lawyer so I did a lot of um sort of corporate regulatory law and stuff like that so it's the kind of thing I was really interested in um and I had this preconception that that the concept of corporate manslaughter is a, is a really modern one that it it goes back to this um re- really tragic period in in sort of the late 80s and early 90s where there was this um sort of slew of of public disasters with with huge loss of life in in Britain there were things like the marchioness sinking in the Thames and the the um the King's Cross station fire uh, and sinking the Herald of Free Enterprise ferry on on the crossing from Zeebrugge that all happened in quite a short space of time with um with high casualty numbers and and people really felt that um it, it wasn't sufficient to hold individuals accountable that's you know the circumstances of these tragedies really required um corporate accountability for for what had happened um and um what i i was surprised to find when i was researching the book is is the concept of, of corporate accountability for homicide is older than than i had first thought there's actually a case in the 1920s involving a, a young boy in Wales who was uh, electrocuted by a, a perimeter fence at a colliery um, and and his family tried to prosecute the, the coal company for his death uh, unsuccessfully um, and they, they said that um, because um homicide has has the idea of personal violence at its heart that you you can't make a company guilty of that um and so nobody tried again for for 60 odd years then and until the um the herald of free enterprise catastrophe which was a a ferry that was on a, the crossing of the the channel from zebrugge back to dover when that sank in uh, the late 1980s, um, the, the outcry was such that that people wanted to see action brought against P and O, the ferry company, uh, and and 
and it was attempted. There was there was a case brought against um, both um, the directors of of P and O, but also the company itself for manslaughter. Um, it's not possible to to prosecute a company for murder because a, a key element of that is that uh, the person who's who's committed the offence has to have a guilty mind. They have to have intended to kill somebody to make them guilty of murder. And obviously companies don't have minds. They, they, they're they non-human entities. They can't have that. So any conviction for, for homicide could only be for manslaughter. And it rested really on being able to prove that uh, sufficiently senior people at the company had, had in effect committed the offence of manslaughter. Uh, and in the P&O case, the court decided that they hadn't. There, there couldn't be this link made between the um, the upper echelons of the, the management and the board and, and what had actually happened to the people on the ferry. So the prosecution was 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 thrown out of court and, and collapsed. Um, and then it wasn't until um, 2007 when uh, the government actually brought in a specific piece of legislation to make um, corporate homicide and corporate manslaughter a specific criminal offence. That was the... Um, the, the first time that it be, had been properly addressed in English law, so I, I think the the impact of that new offence has been has been fairly muted to date. Really, there haven't been any big cases of prosecutions of of big companies for um, for fatalities. Really, so I think what will be interesting to see in the in the coming years if is how that plays out in uh, the context of things like the Grenfell Tower disaster um, and whether the the law of corporate manslaughter that we've we've got on the statute books now is really sufficient to um, to, to bring uh, companies and organisations to book for, for a big tragedy like that. So I think there will be some uh, interesting developments in this area of the law in the next few years. That was Kate Morgan. Kate's book, Murder, the Biography, is on sale now, published by Mudlark. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Larry Loftus will be sharing the story of a World War II spy. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.